the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Folks, welcome once again to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Uh, This is the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN in Orlando, Florida. Now, let me tell you about our engineer. His name is Alan Dempsey, and he does this well every week for us. Uh, Andrew Hertliska uh, produces the shows each week for us. And Luke Cauley is with us. Uh, He is uh, in Bucharest, Romania, as we speak. And we're going to talk about his new book, The Myth of the Non-Christian. IVP is the publisher. The subtitle, Engaging Atheists, Nominal Christians, and the Spiritual but Not Religious. Well, Luke, wonderful to chat with you. I hope things are going well. Yeah, fantastic to be here. How How did you end up in Bucharest? What's going on in Romania? How did I end up in Bucharest, Romania? Well, I've had a long relationship with the city on and off uh, since my early 20s. And um, they've had freedom of religion here for about 25 years, uh, which didn't necessarily work out into um, freedom to speak publicly of Jesus in the university settings, which is a particular passion of mine. Um, The last five or six years, um, opportunities to do that have emerged, and um, I was asked by some Romanian organizations to come out here and give them some advice and input on training on on, uh, how to do that a little better. So that's how I ended up here. Luke Colley is the director and co-founder of Chris Solis, uh, a UK-based ministry that helps organizations and churches better communicate uh, the Jesus story. Well, in your book, The Myth of the Non-Christian, you've got four parts. The first one is called Engaging Diverse Contexts. Uh, What does that mean? What does that mean, Luke? Yeah, sure. So uh, one of the triggers for writing this book uh, was realizing that every book I picked up on evangelism, virtually every book I picked up about communicating Jesus or every uh, talk or seminar I heard about it seemed to conceive of... um, something called a non-Christian, um, as if there was this generic being, um, kind of all people who were not Christians lumped in together, and we could simply formulate an approach and a set of messages and answers and practices which would engage uh, the kind of generic non-Christian. Um, and over my many years of uh, trying to engage people with the message of Jesus, I've realized that, that people who are not Christians are not a homogenous group. Um, they're a very diverse group, and if we're going to engage effectively with them, then really our starting point for that needs to be understanding them as a group, and then tailoring our answers and our modes of communicating about Jesus to their concerns and to their uh, unique needs, while retaining a kind of core which spreads across every group. 
Um, so that's why my first section is called Engaging Diverse Context, because I want to help people think not how do I engage the generic non-Christian out there, but how do I engage the atheist in my office, the spiritual but not religious guy next door, the kind of ex-Christian across the street? How is it that I engage real-life people who are not Christians with the message of Jesus? Luke, there's some uh, pretty fancy words here in part one. Flex- yeah. Flexibility, plausibility, and desirability, tangibility. Uh, can you fill us in on what those words mean? Yeah, sure. So, um, when uh, maybe it might be helpful for me to tell you a story. When um, when I was 22 years old, um, I you would find me very frequently wrapped up warm in a ski coat, ski hat, ski jacket, um, no, ski pants, and boots in the cold, in the snow, sat on a bench. Uh, an hour a day, I'd be sat on the bench. Um, I guess the reason I went there was because ever since I was quite small, I'd had a sense that there was something out there that was bigger than I was. And uh, because of my religious background, I called that thing God. And, uh, and I called my attempts to reach out to this thing prayer. So I'm sat on this bench an hour a day, um, trying to pray to God, trying somehow to connect to God. Um, and, and I found it hard to do so. I found it hard to, um, to um, first of all, to, to um, get in my head, what should I be thinking about when I think about God and speak to God? I'd scrunch up my eyes and uh, try to focus on this idea of God. Okay, I've been speaking to God. I've got to point my mind towards God. And, and it just seemed frustrating and impossible. It seemed like trying to hug a cloud effectively, trying to relate to God. Um, the other thing was I would, after I got away from the bench, I would, um, I'd walk to the bus stop. At this time, I was living in Bucharest, Romania. I'd walk past um, old women begging on the streets because the pension system had collapsed and devalued their pensions. I'd get on the bus. There would be a man with no legs um, pulling himself through the bus, begging for money. Uh, apparently, he lost his legs after his parents put him on the train line as a child and the train ran over his legs and chopped his legs off and they thought he'd fetch more money as a beggar if he was legless. Then I got off the bus and, um, and I'd see kids who were living in the sewers um, coming up and again asking me for money. And this was my day every day, vainly trying to connect with God on the bench. Um, coming off the bench and, and walking past uh, these old women, the legless begging homeless man and the children living in the sewers. And um, I think over time, I just thought, where is God in all this? I'm not connecting with him in my prayers. And I look at all these terrible things happening around me, and I think, well, if I could do something about all these terrible things around me, I would do something about it. Where is God in all this? And uh, I wake up Christmas Day morning, um, and, uh, and actually, awkwardly enough, this period of my life, I was supposed to be a Christian missionary. So, um, so this isn't really the point of your life you're supposed to be doubting God. But I wake up Christmas Day morning, my first Christmas Day as a missionary, and I, my prayer was this. I pray, God, I don't think you're real, and if you are real, I don't think I like you. So I said, God, I don't think you're real, and if you are real, I don't think I like you. Um, so this is me waking up Christmas Day morning, taking an unexpected swerve into atheism, which has been brewing for months on end. Um, later that day, I go out of my apartment, and I, um, and I, start, I trudge through the snow, to my friend's apartment, and he gives me a book about, and I look on the cover, and there's a picture of Jesus, and I think, yeah, I like Jesus. I 
don't know what I think about God, but I like Jesus. I could relate to him. I remember the stories of him, and I think how kind, compassionate, understanding he was. And um, but I, but I, yeah, there's something about Jesus that draws me. Something about God that repels me. And um, as I open up the book, um, I um, I came across these words that Jesus said. Jesus said, "Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father." Which basically means if you want to know what God is like, he's like me. And I realized that I had been thinking of God as some distant, invisible cloud-like figure. But actually, God is like Jesus. And that means we have a God who suffered with us, suffered for us. Um, In a way, I live in a world created by the crucified God. And so that transformed the way I prayed, the way I related to God. That kind of transformed my rejection of God. I realized I was rejecting a God of my imagination, not a God of reality. Um, So for me, this was kind of a massive turning point to have this huge question in my life, what about all the suffering? And then to realize, actually, there are good answers to the question of suffering. And there was more to my discovery about than simply discovering Jesus shows us God. But realizing there are good answers to the question of suffering. So I put that word plausibility and desirability in there because I think we need to show people that there are good answers to their questions. And also that Christianity is desirable. It doesn't just tick all the logical boxes. There's something that drew me about that image of, of God that we see in, in, in Jesus on the cross, something about the suffering God which drew me to God. So I say, look, we need to show people ways that God is plausible, to so understand their questions, answer them. Also, how is he desirable? How is he attractive to them? Uh, and then, then the third point, tangibility, I put in there. So you want to show it's plausible, you want to show it's desirable, you want to show that it's real. And what I realized is lots of books about how to share Jesus with people seem to assume that that you had this kind of almost disembodied dialogue of question, answer, question, answer, answer, response, and, and would teach people a set of, of kind of rote responses to give to people. But most people discover Christ in the, in the con- context of friendship, in the context of um, dinner table and seeing how Jesus works out in the context of a Christian family life. Luke Colley is our guest. He's with us from Bucharest, Romania, talking about his book, The Myth of the Non-Christian. We've got another segment with Luke when we come back, and we're going to talk about engaging the spiritual but not religious. That's the next part of his uh, new book. I'm Pat Williams. It's the Saturday Power Hour. We do it every weekend on the new 94.9. Make sure you know that, 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. Maybe you've been walking with God for most of your life. Maybe you don't know much about Jesus or the Bible. Whatever your background, the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN invites you to join us each Sunday morning at 1045 for Reach Orlando, a Bible-centered church with a passion to love God, love people, and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the world. Come study the Bible together with Pastor Adam Parsons and draw closer to God with Reach Orlando, Sunday morning at 1045 on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. 
Tune in every Sunday evening, 8.30 p.m. to experience a live conference call around the world. People will be sharing their amazing health experiences they encountered drinking a proven nutritional medicinal drink. The fruit of the drink has been consumed for thousands of years with many health benefits. Worldwide speaker Trish Bain will be hosting the call and explaining all the benefits. This product has been featured on news programs around the world for 20 years. Sunday evening at 8.30 on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. Thinking about life insurance? What if you could make one free phone call and learn your best price from nearly a dozen highly rated price competitive companies? Well, that's exactly what happens when you call Select Quote Life. For example, George is 40. He was getting sky high quotes from other companies because he takes meds to control his blood pressure. But when I shopped around, I found him a 10 year, $500,000 policy for under $28 a month. I'm SelectQuote agent Dan Savino, and believe me, if SelectQuote isn't shopping for your life insurance, you're probably paying too much. For your free quote, call 1-800-509-1667. That's 1-800-509-1667. 1-800-509-1667. Or go to SelectQuote.com. Since 1985, we shop. You save. Get full details on the example policy at slowquote.com slash commercials. Your price can vary depending on your health issuing company and other factors not available in all states. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat. Luke Cauley joins us from Bucharest, Romania. We're talking about his book, The Myth of the Non-Christian. Luke, I want you to talk to us about part two, Engaging the Spiritual but not religious. Yes. Um, so spiritual but not religious has been a huge growing category over the last few years. And um, I think it really came home to me. I was um, spent a week at a pagan festival. In the, well, it's a festival called Burning Man, which has a, a lot of, I guess, what you call pagan and, and new age spirituality around it. And spent a week as part of a project interviewing people in the desert. And... Um, one of my friends said to me beforehand, oh, I so admire you going and speaking with all these people who are so hostile to the Christian faith. Um, the weird thing was that when I went there and interviewed people, I found that there was, um, there was an incredible amount of openness, actually, towards Christianity. Most people who call themselves spiritual but not religious don't seem to have any kind of religious background. It's not that they're burnt out and angry at church. They're just often people who grew up with no religious background, have some kind of strange spiritual experience, and, and find themselves seeking for more. So, um, so yeah, in that chapter, I kind of describe, um, describe that group of people and try to encourage Christians not to see them as enemies or people caught up in the demonic, but just see them as, as curious individuals um, who, who are potentially open to the Christian faith if we, if we took the time to, to listen to them and share the faith with them. Luke Cauley joins us. Uh, we are talking about his book. It's called uh, The Myth of the Non-Christian. Now, let's get into this topic, Luke, Engaging Atheists. Um, that's a wide and broad topic, but uh, I want you to plug in for us. Engaging Atheists, what do you teach us? Sure. I, I mean, I think the starting point, as I've said, for, for speaking to any group is understanding what they're like. And... and I think there's a sad phenomenon of Christians looking at atheists and treating them like they're enemies or stereotyping them as angry or bitter. Um, 
I remember I was, I was when I was studying at Oxford University, walking on, uh, hearing a lecture by a leading atheist, and um, uh, in which he said um, it was it was potentially okay to kill children in the first year of birth, and and me, and that's not a typical view amongst all atheists. But this guy was teaching it, and I and I felt like um, felt very angry actually that this brand of atheism had managed to gain a foothold in Oxford University, was walking along with my friend. We were both ranting and at each other, getting kind of riled up and angry about these people coming in here saying this. And at that very moment, Richard Dawkins, who's the most famous atheist in the world, whizzed past me on a bicycle. And, um, and as I saw him whiz past me on the bicycle, this Bible verse um, kind of jumped into my head, which said, um, we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers. And I realized my mistake there was to think that I had a fight with atheists, which I don't, actually. I'm fighting for them. I'm helping them discover um, discover something of the truth and the beauty and the relevance of Christ for them. And I think if we let some of the most interesting and warm and thoughtful and friendly discussions I've ever had about Jesus have been with atheists and and if we can figure out ways um to speak about that well with them um we can have really interesting discussions too so part of what i write about in my book is certain ways for example um an approach that i've used before is just to have a have a structured a structured dinner you invite your friends who are skeptical around and you say listen all i want to do is just hear from you why you don't believe and i want to share a little bit of why i do and you give people the opportunity really to air what is it that they really think. You take the time to listen to them and maybe have the opportunity to share a little bit of Jesus. And I expand on that more in the book about specific ways to do that. But I try to look at ways that we can constructively speak to atheists instead of arguing or fighting or treating them as our enemies. Uh, Luke, I want you to talk a little bit more about creating safe spaces for exploring questions in regard, yeah. in regard to engaging atheists? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think the key is to listen to people. Um, you have to, quite often I think the temptation is for us to, to want to jump in with the answers for people. Um, but I think you, you have to create a space for people to share. So as I, um, <coughs> for example, one of the churches that I cite in my book um, that, I, that I interviewed various people there about. They, if they're hitting a, a controversial topic, they make sure that they give over a lot of time, not just to having the person speak about, let's say, is the Bible homophobic or um, does Christianity and religion promote violence? They don't just have somebody speak about it. They have an opportunity for other um, for, for people to put questions and engage and discuss. So I've often found that if you can create space within your church or within your organization just (coughs) to listen to people and have those people share what they think. And then I think think alongside that, a safe space for people isn't just, is also a chance to give them the chance to engage with the best evidence for the Christian faith. So that means we really have to learn what are the best responses to the most common questions that atheists ask? And not bash them over the head repeatedly with it, but do give them an opportunity to be exposed and say, look, you might think that religion has disproved, that science has disproved religion, but let me just show you some 
ways. I've become convinced of the opposite. I just let me share that with you. So even last week, I did that at a university. Spent 50 minutes saying, "Look, let me share with you how I conceive of the relationship between religion and science." Now you, now you come back with me. What you want to say about it? And I spent an hour dialoguing with a group of atheists. And if we learn to understand the questions well, then actually we can have tremendously fruitful conversation and dialogue with people. And now uh, there's actually a number of people from atheist backgrounds come to faith in Christ in this way. Let's move to the fourth part. It's called Engaging yeah. Nominal Christians. Yeah. Uh, what, what do you have to say there? Yeah, so a nominal Christian is a person who bears a name Christian, uh, but is not. The fundamental reality of, of knowing and following Christ is missing from their life. And... Um, and again, I mean, as I've said before, to, to understand people is vital. And, and one of the mistakes is to conceive of nominal Christians as hypocrites. Often that, I would say, of course, you find hypocrites in every group in humanity, don't you? But I think often nominal Christians are just um, either people who've kind of vaguely imbibed a Christian identity from their upbringing or the people who've had a bad experience of church and, and walked away from that. So first of all, just... Um, Understanding who you're talking to, are they kind of vaguely Christian but, but really unaware of the tenets of the basic of the Christian faith, or are, are they kind of upset and hurt? Um, I think also understanding that, that um, yeah, often it, that there's kind of a painful story which goes behind why people, why people who call themselves Christians have no connection with a Christian community. So we want to create ways that people can people can rediscover Jesus and reconsider, um, reconsider church for themselves. Um, quite often, I think, so I think we, we want to create, one of the things I write about, there's several different kind of practices that I suggest that people do of nominal Christians. One of them would be just um, creating a space where people who are not Christians are able to share the stories of their doubts and share the stories of their questions. And where Christians take the time to listen to nominal Christian stories of doubts and unbelief. Because strangely enough, I find that many um, nominal Christians believe that their doubts and their questions should, should be a thing that keeps them outside the church and a thing that keeps them away from Christ. And even last week, I was talking to many nominal Christians about this. I spoke for a week in, the, in Kiev and Ukraine to audiences of no, nominal Christians. And um, <coughs> people said, a lot of questions. Sometimes I'm frustrated. Sometimes I'm angry at God. And I repeatedly actually opened up to them the Psalms in the Bible and said, do you realize these, these are people of God in the Bible expressing their frustration, expressing their anger, expressing the question, where is God in all this mess? And you have to realize that, that what you are saying is an echo of the Christian scriptures. And this, to be part of the church is to be in a place where your doubts are welcomed, your questions are welcomed, um, and even it's okay not to believe and to be frustrated at God. That's completely okay. This is a space where you can kind of move forward in your spiritual journey. So that, that's broadly a kind of brief spoonful of what I'd say in that section about engaging nominal Christians. Luke, do you have the freedom to share the gospel throughout uh, those parts of uh, uh, Russia and uh, Eastern Europe? Are, are you comfortable? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm very comfortable doing it. I, th I think the problem is quite often. So how do, you, how do you get access to a public space? 
tends to be the problem. Mm-hmm. So you could. So I'm very keen that we speak about God in places which are. I'm very keen for churches to speak well of Jesus, but I'm also very keen to be able to speak of him in prisons and places of business and, and universities. And um, and I would say, at least in Romania and Ukraine, um, to draw on my own experience, recent experience, I wouldn't say we have a wide open door, but we we have, the door is cracked open and we can lean our shoulders on it and give it a shove. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it opens up sometimes. So, um, I mean, we had a week, a couple of, like, last year, I think, where we um, we spoke to 2,000 people in a week at a university where God has never been publicly discussed before. So it's not easy, but but you can, it is opening up as a possibility, so it's exciting when it happens. Uh, what about your language skills? How many languages do you speak? Um, well, I speak Romanian and English, mm-hmm. so... Um, I'm, um, those would be my two main languages. So Romanian only um, works in Romania and in the Republic of Moldova, which is a small former Soviet republic. Um, so last week I was translated into Russian for the week. So, um, so yeah, and that that has, that has pros and cons. Um, you have to have, you have to have a good translator, and I did. I had a fantastic one actually. So. Um, yeah, that was quite incredible, actually, and had, had a wonderful piece of news on the, on the last day. Of, uh, um, I gave a talk, which personally I would rank as one of my worst, but um, about the prodigal son. Mm-hmm. And I got a message a couple of days later where somebody said, look, some of our students met up with a, a, a girl who has cancer and her mother and shared with them what you'd shared about the story of the prodigal son. And they both turned over their lives to Christ on the spot. Mm. So just exciting, really, <laughs> kind of project to be involved in. Uh, my guest is Luke Cawley, the myth of the non-Christian. Uh, what do you want people uh, who read your book, Luke, what do you want them to take from this? What do you want people to take from our discussion here on radio? Sure. Well, I, I think the book is supposed to be very practical. It's full of my stories and my own personal experience. And I hope that by reading it, people will become more understanding, not simply sympathetic, but they will understand more. So most of my life has been spent in the West, and so it's very attuned, and I did my master's degree in Chicago, so it's very attuned to the situation of the States and of the West. Uh, it kind of comes out about, I wrote it before I moved to Romania. But it, um, I hope that people will be very much more, uh, have a, feel more confident in their understanding of atheists, nominal Christians, and spiritual, not religious. I hope <coughs> that when a tough question comes up in conversation, They'll feel like they know which direction to go in that conversation, not how to win the argument with a person, but simply which direction to go within that conversation, some things they can say to help friends. And I also hope that they'll they'll have some sense of um, whether their position of responsibility is simply being a friend, which is a position of responsibility if it's leading a small group or a youth ministry or or even if it's leading a church. I hope that, that as they read it, they'll say, okay, here are... Two or three, not just how I engage in a conversation, not just how I understand my friend, but here are two or three things that I could do right now to make me or my family or my church or my youth group engage with people around me who aren't Christians more effectively and more appropriately for them. Well, Luke, I want to thank you very, very much for joining us from uh, Bucharest, Romania. 
Uh, Luke's book is called The Myth of the Non-Christian. IVP is the publisher. Luke, continued success. All the best to you, and uh, may God continue to bless your work. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Goodbye. Uh, We've got more after this, folks, here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're listening to the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN in Orlando, Florida. We've got more after this, folks. So uh, please stay with us, and uh, you'll have a good listen here in a few minutes. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. Join Richard Jordan, president of Grace School of the Bible, as he opens God's Word every Sunday afternoon at 5.30 on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. If you missed the Sunday broadcast, you can listen and study along with Dr. Jordan 24-7 at WTLN.com by clicking on the podcast tab and then Riches of Grace. Riches of Grace, a service of Grace Impact Ministries at graceimpact.org. 5.30 Sunday on the new 94. 4.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. Are you nearing eligibility for Medicare benefits? Then you know now is an important time in your life. Medicare benefits can be a complicated puzzle. You don't want to overpay for your Medicare coverage or get the wrong plan. Let Health Markets Insurance Agency help you. With one free phone call, a licensed insurance agent will help you select a Medicare plan that's right for you and your budget. If you're becoming eligible for Medicare, call today and learn how to get the most out of your benefits. 800-884-9325-800-884-9325. Health Markets Insurance Agency is the DBA or assumed name of InSphere Insurance Solutions, Inc., which is an authorized insurance agency in all 50 states in the District of Columbia. Not all agents are licensed to sell all products. Service and product availability varies by state. Call 800-884-9325-800-884-9325-800-884-9325-800-884-9325. Frank Reynolds and Company, a family-oriented and faith-based wealth management firm, is here weekdays at 5 a.m. and 5.30 p.m. It's Faith, Family, and Finances, helping Christian families utilize intelligent wealth management strategies as they seek to accomplish God's leading in their lives, preserving wealth for the future and preparing wealth for generations to come. Faith, Family, and Finances, weekdays 5 a.m. and 5.30 p.m. on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950. WTLN. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat. Luke Cauley, our guest, uh, in that first segment, talking about the myth of the non-Christian, uh, he was uh, in Bucharest, Romania, uh, as he spoke to us. Uh, David Chadwick is back. Uh, We've had other interviews with David on different stations here in Orlando. David and Marilyn uh, have written uh, two books here. Uh, Eight Great Ways to Honor Your Husband is what Marilyn has written. Eight Great Ways to Honor Your Wife, uh, that's David Chadwick's contribution. Uh, They're in the car together, uh, proving that they can honor each other. And uh, here we go. David, great great to visit with you. How you doing? I'm doing well, Pat. What a privilege to talk to you again. Thanks for this time together. Tell me uh, the background of this book. Why was it important for you two to write uh, two separate books? Well, we had our publisher come to us and say, we really think 
this word honor is missing in our culture and particularly in marriages. Would you be willing to explore that? And both of you write companion books talking to husbands and wives. The more we studied the subject, Pat, the more we realized the word honor truly is a word that's missing in action in the American culture and particularly in marriages. Uh, we found the word to mean to prize, treasure, respect, and value another person. For example, as we look at the political landscape today in America, we see the way everyone's pissing one another. Uh, we said, this needs to be explored. So both of us tackled the subject and came up with these eight great ways to honor your husband and wife. What does honor really mean? What, 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 how do you define that word? Well, I think the best definitions are prize, value, treasure, respect, esteem. Um, look at the opposite to dishonor someone. That word dis that we use in a commonplace way in our culture to dis someone means to put them down. So it really has to do with elevating the other person, making them really important in your life. Uh, I jokingly say in my book uh, that it's kind of like a husband looking at his wife saying, you're my once-and-for-all permanent trophy bride. You know, no one else comes in my way. You're the one I elevate and want to live with forever. So it has to do with valuing and esteeming another person even more than yourself. Uh, let, me, let me dive in, David, and uh, continue on this. Uh, you open your book uh, with this uh, chapter, Trust Her Gut. What, what, yeah. does, what does that mean? Well, it is one of the ways you can honor your wife is to learn how to trust her immeasurable intuition, to trust her gut. And I talk about that wonderful intuition that God seemingly gives women that he doesn't give to men. And I talk about how there were times in my marriage with Marilyn where she saw things, uh, she saw people perhaps using me, and, and I wouldn't pay attention to her. And then later... After I stepped in some bad stuff and people did treat me wrongly, I would look at her and say, how did you know that? Mm. And she would say, I just sensed that that was what was going on. And I realized I could have avoided a lot of pain if I just would have learned how to trust her gut. And when I do so, I really honor her, value her, and her insights into my life. Uh, Pastor David Chadwick is with us, and Marilyn, uh, his wife, is with him in the car. They're talking about their two books, Eight Great Ways to Honor Your Wife, Eight Great Ways to Honor Your Husband. Uh, David, talk about the second principle, uh, be a man of God. Yeah, I, I think every woman desires a man who truly wants the best for her life, but also wants their families to be united in God himself. Uh, so this is a little bit to do with that whole being heroic, uh, being a man who really does quest after God's heart, um, a little bit of the Dudley do-right where the woman looks at him after he has saved her, the damsel in distress, and she says, my hero. Uh, it is the understanding that a lot of women out there really do want their husbands to be heroic. And I talk about the different ways in Maryland's and my marriage where we have taken strong stands for truth, for righteousness, uh, for the oppressed, the disenfranchised. And whenever I do that and lead us and our family in a way that does help other people, she admires me for that. And when we do that together, it honors her life with mine. Now you talk about encourage her gifts. That's the third principle, David. Yeah, you know, every 
wife is uniquely gifted. Um, she's not called just to be subservient to her husband and do whatever he wants her to do. Uh, she's called alongside a husband in a complementary role to help them together do great things in the world. And that then considers the reality that she is gifted within herself. And so I look at Marilyn, for example, and she originally was recruited out of college to work in a large corporation, a very highly successful job. But when she decided to marry me and become a minister's wife, she gave all of that up for a season in order to learn church world, to learn how to support me. And in so doing, then I turned around and said, but you're still uniquely gifted. I want to help you find your gifts. So I've learned that she was, in so many ways, gifted, like being a great academician, so I encouraged her to go back to school and get her master's degree in counseling. Uh, I knew that she had a great heart for the poor and needy, so she got involved in the Crisis Pregnancy Center in Charlotte initially. I saw her gifts. Uh, she could speak so well, and so she started the speaking ministry. Uh, she also has writing gifts, obviously, by her companion book, The Eight Great Ways to Honor Your Husband, and another book she's written entitled Sometimes She Whispers, Sometimes She Roars, a book called Prayer. I encouraged her to write. So in helping her to define, discover, and unleash her gifts, she has become the woman God has created her to be, and together we have a much greater impact on the world because we both have complemented one another with our giftedness, and I've helped launch your gifts in the best ways I've known possible. Uh, uh, David Chadwick is with us. His wife Marilyn is with him, and we're talking about two books that have just come out with Harvest House, Eight Great Ways to Honor Your Wife, Eight Great Ways to Honor Your Husband. Uh, now, David, let's talk about respect her opinion. Uh, that's the fourth principle you teach. Yes, Pat, that's almost the next step after... Um, the whole idea of trust her gut, trust her intuition. Uh, when you really love someone and you know that she has intuitions that will really help you, the next step is, is to really seek her opinions on different things. Because sometimes we men and we husbands think we know it all, and, and we've got the insights on everything. And that's just not true. So God's goal in marriage is for the two to become one. So if Marilyn and I become one flesh, that means that God might speak to her regarding issues in my life. So every morning I see Marilyn is seeking the heart of God, and I know that as she seeks God's voice to her ear, I can trust her heart to my heart. So therefore, we need to spend time together on a regular weekly basis. One of the things I emphasize in the book is husbands and wives need to take their Sabbath together. They need a weekly time together where they're connected and they have a chance to talk with one another. So when I'm together with Marilyn during that time period, I want to ask her opinions on different things that are going on in my life. And again, if I know she's listening to the heart of God and we're connected as one, when I ask her opinions on different things, she'll give me oftentimes God's will for my life. And more importantly, that honors her, again, which is the theme of the book, it values, esteems, and treasures her opinion. And everyone wants to have their opinion asked of them. You know, those were some of the great things that some of the teachers who teach us how to win friends and influence people tell us to do is ask people their opinion. Well, if that's true generally, how much more with your wife in order to honor her? Now let's talk about a very interesting topic. Ask this question often. Uh, I'm eager to hear about it, David. 
Well, I believe with all of my heart that there's one question every husband needs to ask their wife over and over and over again, which expresses honor to her. And let me preface the question, Pat, with this phrase. I believe with all of my heart that the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. Let me say that again. The heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. Everything in life flows from the heart. Uh, in Proverbs 4, there's a wonderful verse in the Bible that says the heart is the wellspring of all life. Uh, Jesus even said in Mark, the seventh chapter, that our words give indication of what's in our hearts. And when he changes our lives, what he changes is our hearts. So understanding that the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart leads to this question that husbands need to ask their wives regularly. And here's the question. How's your heart? How's your heart? Now, what's going on inside of you? And then I give some tips in the chapter on how to listen for those feeling words that every wife expresses. Marilyn talks about in her book, Eight Great Ways to Honor Your Husband, the fact that women speak three times more than men. And all of us men and women out there realize that's true. So we men speak much less than our wives do, but when they speak, they speak with more words. Therefore, we should intentionally listen with greater intensity. So when they share those feeling words, what's going on in their hearts, and then you as a husband give those feeling words back to her, and you're indicating that you really are listening to her, it warms her heart. She feels honored. She feels respected and valued in every possible way. So again, Pat, that emphasizes the need for husbands and wives to be together on a regular basis. Take that one day a week, that Sabbath day, that husbands and wives are supposed to set apart and be together. And husbands, when you're with your wife, ask this question often to her, how's her heart? When you listen well, see her face glow, and she will feel honored inside. And then we move to the next topic, David, share your heart. What does that mean? Well, that's the opposite, Pat, for what husbands need to do with their wives. As they ask the question to their wives, how's your heart? Then the wife needs to ask her husband, well, what's going on inside of you? And, you know, most husbands tend to close up everything in our hearts regarding feelings. We just don't express them well. Uh, we bought the lie in our culture that big boys don't cry, and that's simply not true. You know, men have emotions, men have feelings, and they should not be bottled up. They should be expressed. So every wife feels honored when her husband is willing to share his feelings with her. And when he does so, he's not only getting in touch with what's going on in his own heart. Again, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. But he's sharing that with his wife who says, I really want to be a part of who you are. I want to be a part of what's going on in your life. And when you share those feelings, share those emotions, she not only has the chance to give you back insights, which may help you, but she feels honored that you've taken the opportunity and the privilege to share with her what's going on. Pat, I really believe this is true, that it's easy to leave your spouse. It's impossible to leave your best friend. And when you've got a husband and a wife who are best friends with one another, sharing each other's hearts with one another, you're not only expressing honor together, but you're accomplishing the goal in all marriage, and that's the two becoming one flesh, two becoming one, which is, again, God's goal for every single marriage. Honor being one of the means to that end. Uh, now, David, David Chadwick is with us from uh, Charlotte. Eight Great Ways to Honor Your Wife is the name of the book. Be a guardian and gardener. Uh, what's that mean? 
Well, it's asking men and fathers to be very sincerely focused on two areas. First of all, be a guardian of your wife's heart and your home. I really believe, Pat, that according to the Bible, men are supposed to be the spiritual leaders of their home. That does not make them better than their wives. It simply says in the area of spiritual nourishment and development, the men are supposed to be the initiators of what's supposed to happen faith-wise in the home. So first of all, the man should be a guardian. And you look at Psalm 127, 1, for example, where it says, unless the watchman walked the walls of the city, that city is operating in vanity. Uh, the idea being a city is only as strong as its walls. So therefore, a husband needs to walk the walls of his family all the time, watching out for those detestable enemies that are out there to destroy the marriage and the family. Then secondly, he's supposed to be a gardener. It's interesting that in the Bible, Israel is called the vineyard and God is called the vine dresser. Jesus said in John 15, I am the vine, that those who follow him are the branches, and they are to be connected to him. So there's that whole idea of being a nourisher in the vineyard, and I think the vineyard can also be your home and family. So husbands need to take responsibility for nourishing spiritually their families as their gardeners. And I think there are two ways you do that by prayer, but also, secondly, praying God's Word over your wife and over your children. My guest is David Chadwick, pastor in Charlotte. Uh, We're talking about his book, Eight Great Ways to Honor Your Wife, the companion volume, Eight Great Ways to Honor Your Husband, uh, that Marilyn Chadwick has written. Uh, We've got more with the Chadwicks, folks, right after this, here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's the new 94.9 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. This is Dennis McKenzie for Families by Design. Strong families are designed by God. Do you want your family designed by God? For inspirational principles for today's families, listen to Families by Design with your host, Dr. Daniel Forbes and attorney Delton Chen. Families by Design airs every Sunday at 9 p.m. That's Families by Design on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. A lot of people have life insurance through work. It's a great short-term benefit, but is it enough? A lot of those policies only cover a year's salary. Not enough to pay off mortgages or send kids to college. The things life insurance is meant for. That's where SelectQuote comes in. SelectQuote is your personal life insurance guide. They get multiple quotes to find you the best price from the highly rated companies they represent. John is 36 and in excellent health. He got a half million dollar policy for under $20 a month. Life insurance is about peace of mind, not a false sense of security. Which are you getting? Call Select Quote now at 1 800 603 1332. That's 1 800 603 1332. Or get started at SelectQuote.com. 1 800 603 1332. Select We shop, you save. Get full details on the example policy at SelectQuote.com/commercials. Your premium could vary depending on your health, issuing company, and other factors. Not available in all states. 
you have enough drinking water at home or work? Or whatever life throws at you. This is Florida, and you can never have enough good, wholesome drinking water on hand for meetings, family gatherings, even Mother Nature's wrath. Be prepared with Carolina Highland Mountain Spring Water, delivered directly to your home or business. Call now for their Be Prepared delivery special. Individual bottles, dispensers, and coolers. No contracts, no fees. Call 407-851-7144. Online at carolinabottledwater.com. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat. David Chadwick, uh, for many years, has pastored the Forest Hill Church in Charlotte. Uh, He writes books and good ones. And uh, the one we're discussing is Eight Great Ways to Honor Your Wife. Uh, David, the eighth principle uh, that I want you to get into, use words wisely. Well, Pat, that was one of my favorite chapters to write in the book uh, because you know as well as I do the power of words. Um, The Bible talks about uh, that very reality in verses like Proverbs 18.21, which says there's life and death in the tongue. Uh, Proverbs 15.1 says a soft answer turns away wrath. Uh, James 3 says that one single word can spark a forest fire of experience in a person's life. So the Bible talks a lot about the need to guard our words, and anyone who's in any kind of a relationship, but particularly a good marriage relationship, knows the power of positive words and how you need to use your words wisely to give life to your wife's soul, not death. So you honor your wife, you value her, esteem her, treasure her by using how choosing how to use words wisely to bless her heart. So I talk in the book about many different kind of phrases that I've come up with through the years that I speak to Marilyn, my wife, about almost 38 years often and regularly. Uh, They are phrases like, uh, if I had to do it over again, I'd bury you again. Uh, Here's another one I use. Um, I got the better end of the deal. Uh, Interestingly, There's a survey that's been done by Marcus Buckingham, a very famous author, and he talks about the best marriages out there, and in his work and the Gallup study that he quotes, the best marriages are made up of men and women who think they marry better than themselves. And and I have believed that, so I say that to Marilyn all the time. I got the better end of the deal. In football jargon, I outran my coverage. I know that you're much better than I am, and she feels the same way about me, which I can't understand, and she talks about that in her companion book, The Eight Great Ways to Honor Your Husband, the need to use your words wisely in building up your husband. So that's another phrase that I use. Um, Another thing that I say to her all the time is, I love you more than you love me, and that creates a very humorous debate between us, and we can argue about that, but it says to her, I really do care for you. So I find these different phrases, Pat, and I've made a list of them, and I speak them to her regularly. In fact, one time, I was trying to figure out a new way to do her birthday, and I couldn't think of a way, so my son, Michael, and I went out and bought a bunch of Post-it notes, and I posted about 40 of them all over the house, just writing on them how much I loved, honored, and respected her. Interestingly, just the other day, I was getting something out of the refrigerator, and I noticed a note on the refrigerator that basically said, I love you so much, I honor you so much, I'm so thankful I'm your husband. It was one of those post-it notes I wrote five years ago that she had placed on the refrigerator, and I didn't even know it was there. So there's power in our words. 
Uh, talk to us about the epilogue, David. Uh, they called Honor in Action. That's how you close the book. What does that mean? Well, it's an example, Pat, of an, a marriage relationship that truly does show honor. And it's the relationship of my mom and dad, who both are deceased, both in heaven right now, uh, but to me is a wonderful example of honor in operation, particularly of a man toward his wife. Now, my mom and dad met uh, in high school years ago in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. They fell in love, but they couldn't marry because my dad had to go to seminary, and at that point they had a dreadful rule that seminarians could not marry. Uh, so they had to wait not only until after college but after seminary, but they waited and they married, and they began a torrid 63-year love affair. Mm. It was beautiful no matter where they went, uh, Charlotte to Kansas City to Orlando, Florida, where Dad was the pastor of First Presbyterian Church for 16 years mm. uh, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. They just loved one another. Well, after he retired from First Pres, uh, they took on different pastorates called interim pastorates, where they would stay for a year, two years, between pastors. And they went to Winston-Salem, uh, their hometown, and, and Mom one day forgot to turn off the oven. And that was so unusual for her. You know, her in the kitchen was like Russell Wilson on the football field. I mean, she knew what she was doing. But it began a pattern of her slowly but surely beginning to forget things. And sure enough, after some period of time, the doctors diagnosed her with Alzheimer's. Mm. She had a rare form of it that lasted for 17 years. Mm. Most Alzheimer's patients only last for nine years. The moms lasted for 17 years. And slowly but surely, you know, Mom and Dad moved into a home, uh, and Mom had to go into the Alzheimer's unit. And, Pat, for the last four years of her life, she was in that Alzheimer's unit. Most of those years, she did not know anyone who was present. But every single day, practically, my dad would go in there. He would sit with her. He would read the Bible to her. He would pray with her. He would sing old hymns of faith to her. And that's the time she would get the most recognition from her is when he started seeing those old hymns. When he got any kind of recognition from her, his day was made. And Pat, for all of those years, Dad just loved her, cared for her, even when she didn't even know he was there. He maintained his vows, for better or for worse, richer, poor, sickness, and in health. Mm. And when she finally died, I said, Dad, you have given me the best definition of honor in the way you treated mom, especially in those last four to five years of her life. And he just said, well, son, I just loved her, and it was a privilege to honor her. So that last epilogue is the story of their life and how Dad prized, valued, esteemed, and treasured this remarkable woman and gave me the best example I could ever have of what the true definition of honor is. Uh, David Chadwick is with us. He and wife Marilyn have written uh, two books together, uh, each one writing separately, Eight Great Ways to Honor Your Husband. Uh, David, tell me about Marilyn's book. Well, Marilyn was asked to do a companion book uh, in the same arena of honoring your husband, and everyone knows out there, Pat, that men and women are very different. You know, God created us very different, and I think that's because in marriage he wanted to teach us how to be servants. You know, Jesus said in Mark ten forty five, for the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life away. Well, marriage is the graduate school of servanthood. It's servanthood 401, as most of us know, and that's because we learn how to give and share and care for one another in our differences. So Marilyn addresses the whole idea of honor towards your husband 
in her eight great ways. Some of them are similar. Interestingly, people who read, read both books said there are some really interesting similarities in Maryland, and I didn't even know that when we wrote the books. We did not get together and conspire. We simply gave our perspectives on it. And so she has some similar things in her book, like using words wisely and those special times together where you're seeking each other's heart. But she gives some other insights into how women can uniquely care for their husbands and honor them and lift them up. Uh, she has those insights in her book that I think will help wives learn how to reclaim this word honor in their marriages. Uh, I, I want you to expand, uh, David, on just a, uh, a couple of thoughts here uh, that Marilyn gets into. One of them is build him up. Uh, expand, can you can you expand on that and why that's so important? I sure can. You know, a lot, a lot of people say don't ever underestimate the power of the male ego, and the male ego is there, but the truth is, Pat, most of us men are little boys in big skin, and we still have a lot of our own insecurities that are going on in our lives. And a wife can really honor her husband when, with her words and action, she builds him up. I know that when Marilyn speaks well of me to other people, it really builds me up. And she talks a lot in her book about what's going on in the world today with women, about dissing their husbands. Uh, we're hearing that from a lot of our women in the church we pastor in Charlotte called Forest Hill, that when they deal with other women, it's kind of a man-bashing time. And she spends a lot of time trying to tell women, use that opportunity to use your words to build your husband up, and do it also when you're with him face-to-face. And when you do so, it will make him feel esteemed, valued, and honored. So she talks a lot about how men, even in their great uh, security, are basically insecure, and when women build them up, it honors them. David and Marilyn Chadwick, what a pair. Uh, The two books are out uh, with Harvest House, Eight Great Ways to Honor Your Wife, Eight Great Ways to Honor Your Husband. Uh, We will have a wrap-up, folks, right after this. Uh, This is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour here on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN in Orlando, Florida. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. Hi, I'm Barbara Sandek, your host on Grace Notes, a 15-minute program that contains biblical teaching and a wide variety of music. Some of the subjects we address are why do we have trials and cultivating intimacy with God. You can listen right here on WTLN every Sunday at 2.45 p.m. Can't catch the whole broadcast? Visit our podcast on the web 24-7 on WTLN.com. So tune in. You won't want to miss it. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat. Folks, thanks for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Luke Cauley, our guest in the first half hour from Bucharest, Romania, uh, talking about his book, The Myth of the Non-Christian. And then Pastor David Chadwick and his wife Marilyn uh, were with us. Uh, David did all the talking because Marilyn, could, we couldn't really hear her well. They're in the car, and and uh, that's where the interview took place. But uh, their books are out, Eight Great Ways to Honor Your Husband, Eight Great Ways to Honor Your Wife. Uh, please check out my most recent book. It's called Extreme Winning, 
uh, The 12 Qualities of the Extreme Winners. I think you'll enjoy it. It's in bookstores now. And Amazon.com, always a wonderful way uh, to order books. Uh, Have a great week ahead with this beautiful weather here in Central Florida. And we're back next weekend for more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. This is the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN in Orlando. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this same time on the intersection of faith and reason. The new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.